You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello and welcome episode 151 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on the Public Universal Friend. I'm Marie Haas, and with me today are Carla Godwin and guest panelist Carol Hawk. Hi, Carla and Carol. Hi, Marie. Hello. So let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Um, Carla, could you start us off? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, So a little noise disclaimer first. I am in Minneapolis, where I live, of course, and there's a storm happening right now, and I live in a little, like, story and a half, so I'm upstairs in the sort of attic space, and um, it might, you might get to hear the storm a little bit in the background, so that's my disclaimer. Um, Like I said, I live in Minneapolis. I live here with my two kids. Um, I formerly worked in progressive post-evangelical faith spaces. I founded and directed an organization called She Is Called that worked toward gender equity in in church leadership. Um, The last two years, I have worked as the director of operations for a small family foundation here in the Twin Cities called the Graves Foundation. We grant primarily to youth causes in Minneapolis, um, and I'm the training director for uh, our housing initiative called Paris Housing. Um, So yeah, that's my story. Thanks, Carla. That's always so impressive to hear about all your experience. And we're very happy today to have Carol Hawk joining us for the first time. Carol, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, My name is Carol Hawk. I live in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I'm a high school teacher here, so I teach um, uh, high school social studies, and I also teach the uh, work with English language learners in our district. Um, so it, it's fun to look at this topic because it has so much history and language um, affiliated with it for tonight's episode. Um, I have three children and three grandchildren and one um, more grandson expected to arrive in November. Thanks so much. Well, I, I hope everything goes well with the arrival of the, this uh, grandchild. And it is interesting thinking about how we would teach on a figure like the, the friend. So that's uh, great to have your perspective on that. And so to introduce myself, I'm Marie Haas, a regular panelist on the show and moderator for today's episode. I have a background in literature, a PhD in early modern literature, and a couple years ago I finished an MDiv at Yale Divinity School with a certificate in women's gender and sexuality studies. And I'm currently living in Connecticut with my husband and two babies and working as a research assistant on an edition of the Tudor translations of Christine de Pizan. And I'm so excited to be talking about the friend today because this is such a fascinating figure. And before we get started on our discussion, I'll just give a little bit of background about this figure. Um, So the friend is a figure from revolutionary America who emerged in 1776, no less. Uh, This self-proclaimed prophet was called the public universal friend and claimed to be a spirit from God animating a body that had previously belonged to a young woman. According to an account preserved by the friend's followers, the 24-year-old Jemima Wilkinson fell ill in Providence, Rhode Island with a fatal fever, during which angels appeared to her and announced that a spirit from God would be sent to the earth to warn the lost uh, to flee the wrath which is to come. Wilkinson herself then died, her soul departing to heaven, according to this account. At Wilkinson's death, the account says... According to the declaration of the angels, the spirit took full possession of the body it now animates. After this event, the public universal friend began preaching an apocalyptic call to repentance, gathered a group of followers known as the Society of Universal Friends, and in 1790 led more than 250 society members in establishing a colony named Jerusalem on the lands of the Haudenosaunee peoples in northern New York. The friend occasioned much 
public comment by dressing in a way that seemed carefully curated to avoid easy binary gender identification. One observer wrote that the friend's external appearance conveys the idea of being neither man nor woman. This included wearing a loose, non-form-fitting robe with a vest and clerical-style masculine neckcloth, sporting a masculine hat outdoors and bearing an unbound shoulder-length hairstyle when indoors, as well as riding side saddle and using feminine slippers. The Friends followers were marked by their adherence to what seems to have been the Friends' desired naming practice, never calling the friend Jemima Wilkinson since that person had died, and never using gendered pronouns to refer to the friend. So clearly there's a whole lot to talk about with the public universal friend, and before we do, I think we should probably clarify how we will be talking about the friend, because there have been a lot of different naming and pronoun practices that have been used in relation to the friend. So for myself, I'm trying generally not to use pronouns at all for the friend, since this was clearly what the friend wanted. And, of course, I think it's good to follow people's stating naming, stated naming practices. Um, at the same time, this is a little bit more of a vexed question than it would be normally, I think, because in this the case of the friend, following the friend's instructions about not using pronouns was also this marker of religious identity showing that you were a member of the Society of Universal Friends, and I'm not. So I have a little bit of a qualm in that regard. So, while I'm mostly avoiding pronouns for the friend, I might occasionally use the pronoun they for the friend to signal that lack of religious affiliation, at the same time as recognizing the, uh, the non-binary presentation that the friend curated, and as well as, I think, to, to try to be transparent in showing that my interest in the friend is partly in recovering a useful past in relation to non-binary folks today, though of course it should go without saying that ideas about gender and gender identity were very different in early America than they are now, and the identities we now have for transgender and non-binary are um, not, would not have been concepts that were known at the time. So what about you, Carla and Carol, on this question? And <laughs> I hear the clock ringing, so our listeners will know it's nine o'clock as I record this, but um, what, are, what pronouns or naming practices will you two be using? I um, really appreciate the way you described that, Marie, because it's also very much the way that Scott Larson, the author of the piece we're going to be talking about, um, discusses it uh, in trying to honor what the friend would have wanted and not being anachronistic about, um, uh, is that the right word? <laughs> I feel like I got that word wrong, um, about the way that he named her them. So can you correct me there, Marie? Um anachronistic anachronistic or... thank <laughs> I think it's yes thank you I'm like, <laughs> i think I'm, I'm missing a consonant there anyway um yes so i i appreciated the way that scott larson discussed that in the piece and it's very much the way that you talked about it that um sort of using our current 20th 21st century um understanding of of transgendered pronoun use does not actually apply accurately to what the friend would have requested and so in keeping with actually the values and ethics of I think trans culture that says, you know, a person should be able to choose their identity. I think trying to not um, use pronouns for the friend is what I would like to do. Uh, I found in trying to talk with my my partner about this a little bit ago that that was very hard and I kept wanting to use the pronoun they. So you did it so well. Scott Larson does it so well. I can imagine that I will regularly be, be relying on the pronoun they while acknowledging that that is not a pronoun that the friend would have used for, for <laughs> their own existence, their own being. So that's probably how I'll go about it today. Thanks for that explanation. That um, really makes a lot of sense. Uh, what about you, Carol? Yeah, as I've been thinking about it, I've been trying to use no gendered pronoun for the friend and also not use they because they, um, you know, they is a plural pronoun. Um, it was interesting to me uh, in reading one of the things that the author of the article that we read mentioned was that in, in, um, in addition to not using a gendered pronoun that um, we have the additional problem that the friend um, would not have been referred to as a person, that the friend 
uh, believed um, the friend self to have been a, a celestial being. And so we end up with the problem of, um, you know, respecting the the question of a gendered pronoun, and then also respecting the question of how the friend um, was perceived in the community. And yet, um, as you said, Marie, you are not a universal friend. We're not universal friends, so do we use the same language? Um, but I would tend to use a, um, a non-gendered pronoun, which is difficult to do. Um, as I was doing this, it reminded me of um, teaching uh, high school writing. And one of the things we sometimes do when we're working with um, doing persuasive writing with our students is students will want to use a lot of first person pronouns. And we do an exercise where we have them go through and circle every time they've said I, me, us, we in their writing, and then rewrite um, you know, they're writing without using first person pronouns and how difficult that is for them to do the first couple times until it gets to be, um, you know, common practice for them or, or they're more comfortable with it. But English just doesn't have any non-gendered pronouns for singular other than it. So for singular people. So, uh, so it's a challenge. Um, one of the things that it talked about was that the friends themselves in using um, non-gendered pronouns for the friend uh, used what the article deemed as torturous syntax and that that was a, a characteristic of their speech patterns um, because of course English just doesn't have good options for 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 this type of thing. Yeah it's something that's uh, complicated and seems to be changing all the time so I'm thinking of uh, the reason I say they as the pronoun that I would use occasionally in relation to the friend is because I think of that as being the most common uh, non-gendered pronoun in use now but I mean we could also use like E or Z or one of those other uh, less common varieties that, that non-binary folks sometimes um, used to to the same effect but your point about the torturous syntax um and is a good one i think in thinking about how we're always evolving and changing in these ways of naming each other in terms of gender and it's always a lot of work in uh making these changes so i think that is why one reason why it's a good practice as we're trying to do to try to follow the friend's wishes as much as we can to avoid the gender pronouns um, at the same time for the reasons of affiliation I am going to try to insert a couple days but uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, Marie, could I could I add real quick like oh it sure was interesting it was it's interesting to me because I actually try to do this when I speak of God um, particularly yes. with my children yes and so I I try to speak of God without without pronoun um and and use just repeat God regularly, and I've learned to do that with that name, with God, and with that being. Um, but it was a lot harder in this case, and I I think that that does speak a little bit to the theological implications that we'll get to. Um, but I do find like with my children, I I really work hard to to have God as a non-gendered being because I want God to represent all the genders. <laughs> um, and if I do speak about God in a gendered way, I tend to use she. Um, in, in part mm. because I want my children to have an identity with God. They're both they're both uh, girls, and so I want them to ha to have an identity with God. I didn't have that in my childhood. God was always referred to as He, and so I think that it was harder for me to identify with um, my divine being in God. Um, anyway, so that's a thing that I, I try to do with my kids and with with God, and I I find it to be an interesting practice there. And I have to say, it was a lot harder in this case. So. Actually, that practice makes it seem like a little bit easier for me to adapt because you get you do get that initial sort of torturous syntax feeling in talking about God and God's self and not using um, gendered pronouns for God. And I sort of had the same feeling in trying to prepare and talking about the friend and the friend's self and, that, and so on. <laughs> uh, um, but okay, before we get into the in-depth discussion, one other thing about naming practices I wanted to bring up was that there have been a variety of practices in the scholarship on the friend. Um, so if you're, you're looking into the friend further after this, you're going to see a lot of different ways of talking about the friend. So earlier scholarship 
uh, tended to use she and sometimes refer to the friend as Jemima Wilkinson, um, which does make sense with the focus of that earlier scholarship usually being about women transgressing gender roles in relation to religion and women as religious leaders. Um, so that scholarship would you know, want to treat the friend in that way to fit into that framework. And then there's the article by Scott Larson, which we read for today for our background on the friend. Uh, it's a very good 2014 article titled Indescribable Being, Theological Performances of Genderlessness in the Society of the Public Universal Friend, 1776 to 1819, which does not use pronouns for the friend in order to follow the friend's wishes. Um, and then there is the most thorough treatment of the friend, which is Paul B. Moyer's 2015 Microhistory of the Society of Universal Friends, which uses masculine pronouns for the friend, as well as uh, often sort of trying to avoid pronouns. Because uh, Moyer claims that some of the friend's followers did this, which I think would, I mean, that would be a fine naming practice if that were actually the case, but I just don't actually think that that's the case. I don't agree with his interpretation of the archival materials, but I still uh, think that's fine if that is the interpretation that you come to um, in looking at the materials. So just getting that out of the way, there are a lot of ways of naming the friend out there in the scholarship. Um, so moving on, let's talk about uh, briefly when we first encountered this figure, the public universal friend, and what our initial impressions were, um, I can start us off. Uh, for myself, I first heard about the friend a few years ago in a homiletics course, when the professor brought the friend up as an example of early American preaching, and the professor used they, them in referring to the friend, which really caught my attention. Um, so when I was then doing the certificate program in women's gender and sexuality studies, I focused on the friend for my final presentation that was a component of the, uh, the program. And for that, I visited the archives in New York to take a look at all these materials about the friend and the small museum there that's dedicated to the friend, which is really a kind of fun thing. It has the friend's carriage with a PUF standing for Public Universal Friend on it. Um, the friend's side saddle, the portrait of the friend, that sort of thing. Um, so again, I'm really glad we're doing this episode because this is such a such an interesting, intriguing figure. Um, what about you guys? When did you first encounter the friend? Um, I had never heard of the friend before um, hearing about this episode. So um, this was my very first encounter of the friend with the friend. And, um, and found it very interesting. I also read the Moyer book in order to just get a little bit more background. And, um, and so this has been my first interaction. Ditto me. Um, Marie, thank you for introducing us to the friend. Um, I, I had not heard of the friend prior to this uh, and has, have been fascinated in reading about uh, the friend and, and the work that uh, that they did. Um, so yeah, thank you for introducing us, Marie. And I really want to go to that museum now. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And this is, I'm glad I could introduce the, you guys to the friend then because it's, the, the friend is really such a fascinating figure in transgender history at this point. Um, really a significant one. So let's move on to our reading section then and get into some of the details of why that is, um, starting off with talking about the friend's mixed gender uh, gender presentation. Uh, Carla, I know you have a couple things to start us off with there. Yeah, I, I'm excited to discuss this with you all. I don't feel like I have like fully formed ideas. I just have um, things that I noticed in the piece that I would love to bring up and have a conversation about. Um, we covered some of this already that I was thinking about, which was the, the sort of 21st century of use of transgender language um, to describe somebody who lived before that terminology and that cultural significance that it carries existed is tricky. Like it's, it just doesn't necessarily um, completely apply. That said, um, this genderless presentation um, or mixed gender presentation, I, I would say that the friend was working toward a genderless presentation, but it required a mixed gender um, like mode of dress and mm -hmm. conversation and voice and all of those things in order to do that. Um, and that that is something that, that at the time meant something 
in some ways entirely different while still giving grounding in history to um, non-binary presentations, you know? So it's not, not applicable to current tr trans um, scholarship and ideology, but it, it is just interesting to try to um, think about that genderless presentation when for us now, there is a whole um, set of ideas and terminology that goes along with that. So that was just something that I found interesting that we've discussed a little bit already. Um, I think that the other piece that we've touched on that goes along here is that the mixed gender presentation for the friend was primarily a theological position, um, that, that the friend was actually um, identifying with a divine being rather than a human being, and therefore they were, present, they were presenting as a genderless being because they were, they were spirit inhabiting a body rather than a full human. Um, and I think that that is, is just a deeply interesting part of this whole conversation and can't be overlooked <laughs> in terms of its implications. Definitely. Um, yeah, that it was interested in, the friend was interested in demonstrating something about divinity and, and this one person's access to or, or representation of that divinity. So I would just love to hear y'all's thoughts on that part. Yeah, I think that is really a central aspect to the friend in relation to gender and what's so interesting to me about that sort of theological aspect of the friend's presentation of genderlessness is what it seems to suggest about what the friend and the society of universal friends would have thought about the nature of gender which is a little bit uh, of it, it would seem that they both the friend and the society would be connecting human gender with something intrinsic in the human soul rather than the human body, which is kind of an interesting position for the time, I think, because when the person named Jemima Wilkinson died, her female feminine spirit left her human body, and that human body was then no longer limited to a female gender, its gender instead being defined by the spirit that inhabited the body. In this case, I agree, it's uh, also, I, I think it's a genderless spirit, or supposed to be a genderless spirit. Um, and there has been some debate in the scholarship over whether or not the friend was actually claiming to be a genderless spirit or if the friend was claiming to be an incarnation of Christ and the friend even actually faced a blasphemy charge in court on that count in 1799. Uh, so if you were taking the friend to be claiming to be an incarnation of Christ then you might read the friend's genderlessness as being this kind of half and half androgyny of a masculine Christ in a female body but I actually I don't think that's what the friend was claiming, and it doesn't really make sense with their prophetic message, which is supposed to precede the coming of Christ. Um, and Moyer then thinks that the friend was claiming to be inhabited by the Holy Spirit, which would be a genderless spirit, um, which, okay, possibly, um, and probably I imagine that the friend's followers would make a claim to have some sort of inhabiting of the Holy Spirit on some level, but I don't think that this is probably the spirit that the friend is claiming to have inhabiting the friend's body, um, because it's recorded that the friend like directly denied that claim at one point. I personally think that the, the friend was claiming that this spirit animating the friend's body was supposed to be this more like generic prophetic spirit, like the kinds of uh, angelic spirits you read about in Revelation and not um, any member of the Godhead. <laughs> um, so I don't think it's a claim on divinity directly in that sense, um, but certainly still a theological claim. Whatever the case, that's sort of a side a sidetrack, but in whatever the case, the spirit is a genderless spirit, not a masculine or a feminine spirit, so the gender performed by the body of the friend is then connected with the spirit within the body, first the female soul of Jemima Wilkinson, then this genderless prophetic spirit, and it's not connected with the body itself 
for the friend and for the society. So um, you get the idea that for them, Jemima Wilkinson's feminine gender is a part of her soul. And that's interesting to me because that's a position that I wouldn't necessarily have expected for the period. Um, my own thought is that it might sort of demonstrate a shift toward that kind of view of gender as this internally held identity that's separable from the body and how the body is socially defined a little earlier than we would have thought in American constructions of gender. Like I would have thought of it as a more of a late 19th century view. Um, so that's that's one aspect of this um, the, the theological uh, uh, relation to gender that you're bringing up here. Yeah, I so appreciate that that the pointing out of the fact that um, that the friend would have said that their spirit was where their their genderlessness existed. Right? Um, it makes me think we're both early modern people. I have a master's in early modern British lit, and so it makes me think a little bit of of. Uh, Elizabeth I, Queen Elizabeth I, and her saying, you know, I'm female in body, but male in spirit, mm, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and asserting authority by being by being male in spirit, um, even though she was inhabiting a female body, is, is part of how she sort of separated herself from the rest of womankind and asserted authority, right? She was exceptional. She wasn't a woman leading. She was a male spirit in a woman body, in a woman's body leading, Um and and in that way, she I just find her to be a complicated figure. So um, this feels a little like that to me. There's a sort of wanting to separate from human experience to be beyond it and apart from it, and thus to be able to comment on it, to be able to mm -hmm. have a way of sort of, um, uh, yeah, being an authority figure based on the fact that it was set apart and something different. So yeah, the exceptionality, I think, is is shared there with the friend i think it's uh it was interesting in reading some of the um newspaper articles and things that were contemporary to the friend that came out that were um very critical and um kind of uh sensationalistic uh with describing at length the clothing that the friend was wearing and all kinds of speculations about what was under the clothing and those kinds of things and um and looking at um, liturgical dress for priests, which always has some level of, um, you know, uh, that that during liturgy in high church, there would be uh, male priests would be wearing things, clothing that would be more gender neutral. Um, and yet somehow the friends um, gender presentation was very uh, got a lot of uh, attention and a lot of fascination in a way that wouldn't seem to be the case in a high church setting in which you would have a, a male priest who would be wearing clothing that would be uh, uh, perhaps in other contexts associated with um, female clothing. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point thinking about how the gender associations of the clothing are already inflected by the religious context in that case. Right. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, I think that the, you know, like you're saying, the presentation that was both male and female uh, in terms of clothing, but then also, like you're saying, clergy presenting, which it aligns this this spirit piece um, with an external expression, I think. Um, so that that's all super interesting. I think a couple of other things that I was pulling, that I was just um, curious about in this piece was... Uh, um, Larson talked about the fact that uh, the Society of the Universal Friend uh, did give women some unusual freedoms in, in Jerusalem, their, their place of, of living and working and being, um, and that women could own property, uh, women did leave, could leave a bad marriage or a marriage that wasn't aligned with the Universal Friend's uh, ideals. And in some ways, I was like, you know, that alone would make this uh, person worth following if you felt a sense of your... Um, of greater freedoms, whether or not you fully believed all the theology. Um, so, I, and I think it just, it, it brings up questions of like how cultures extend rights and how um, we talk about gendered rights or human rights and what is a gendered right and what is a human right um, and how that has evolved over time. Um, feels a little adjacent to what we're talking about, but it was a piece that, that caught my eye a little bit in the piece. Yeah, that has to have been part of the attraction of following the friend, right? I imagine the friend must have had a very charismatic presence, and the the preaching, the descriptions of the preaching would seem to suggest that. Um, but the uh, freedoms, or in some in some areas, must have been 
something that compelled some some followers to join the society. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I I think Carol, did you have anything to add there? Um, no, not in particular. I guess um, one of the things that was, um, although the the groups themselves did seem to have um, more gender equality or um, perhaps be on a continuum. Um, it was interesting to me to see that the the preaching did not tend to, like Larson was very careful to point out that uh, sermons used misogynistic and anti-sex tropes of damning whores, witches, Jezebels, and fornicators. So it was interesting, that was just an interesting point, that um, although the community, which is what I mostly looked at, did seem to have uh, greater freedom for women and greater acceptance of female-headed households, yet it wasn't something that was necessarily coming from a theological place. It was more uh, characteristic of the the way that the community lived out their life together. Right. I thought that was so interesting when they talked, um, Larson talked about the fact that uh, the Universal Friend was not uh, theologically original or doctrinally original and absolutely was not arguing for uh, gender equity in their preaching. Um, Like you pointed out, they were in fact quite uh, in their apocalyptic preaching, quite uh, masculine in the way that they talked about it. It is how Larson describes it. in terms of, you know, like you're saying, um, being misogynistic in their speech about sexuality and about women's bodies, um, and then also about war as an apocalyptic future and violence and that kind of thing. Um, So I thought that was really interesting as well. Yeah, and Um, it wasn't just women's bodies, but bodies in general, too, I think, which sort of goes along with what you were talking about earlier, Carla, about some of the dangers of being removed from the world and sort of looking in on it that was I think a very strong strand in the thought of the Society of Universal Friends that the flesh was very much subordinated um, to the spirit so for example there's in a letter in the Society of Archives it talks uh, the Society Archives sorry it talks about how the spirit that quickeneth uh, it's the spirit that quickeneth and the flesh and blood profiteth nothing um, and the friend uh, mentions the same sort of idea in one of the uh, the friend's publications which are actually sort of this pastiche of mostly Quaker works but that's a whole other thing but, uh, mm-hmm. but the, you did have this strand of thought in the society that the flesh is just profiteth nothing and um, that we would now think is uh, probably an unhealthy subordination of the flesh to spirit. Um, And actually, I think even though people do reiterate a lot about how uh, the friend wasn't theologically innovative, um, there was a little bit of an idiosyncratic theological position in the Society of Universal Friends in that they believed that there wouldn't be any resurrection of the body. Um, So that just goes along with this strong sort of denigration of the body. And then, of course, tied to that, we have denigration of female bodies, particularly because that's, you know, how it always is. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body, because that was the one thing I was trying to kind of sort a little bit, like typically, you know, Christian doctrine teaches in the resurrection of the body, and definitely uh, the friend and the Society of Friends, Universal Friend, um, seemed to approach this whole thing as a problem of the body, you know, with that, like the human body, sex, any of those things in terms of apocalypse, those are the things Mm -hmm. that are bringing on uh, that is the wickedness of the world, you know. Um, and so the genderless experience was, for most people, an experience of spirit and for the next world. And so the fact that they didn't believe in a new embodiment is really apt. I mean, it just really makes sense. Um, yeah, but for me, and we're going to get, I think, a little more to the colonization that you you touched on, Marie, in the beginning, in the intro, um, mm-hmm. and, and the friends sort of bent toward that. But I think that that... Um, for me, I think of that desire to be separate from or beyond human experience um, actually does create the possibility of inhumane action because you so disdain humanity, yeah. <laughs> your own humanity, that then that's super easy to extend to all humanity, that humanity yeah. is somewhat disposable mm-hmm. and that um, that the only goal is a spiritual goal. Um, and I, I think that that can lead to particular um, abuse and colonization uh, in religious spaces. So 
that it played out that way, I guess, feels uh, aligned or something. Yeah, and for me, what you're talking about with um, this, the possibility of genderlessness that's opened up in this, this strong binary between body and spirit that could have been an attraction for followers of the friend um, that has the it has these dangers that you're talking about with um, inhumane action but at the same time I think actually there might not have been as much of this eschatological possibility of genderlessness for the Society of Universal Friends as we might think looking about it looking at it um, now because if they do if they did see gender as tied to the soul rather than the body as would seem to be implied by the account of the friend's resurrection and the friend's transformation uh, then there wouldn't be this sort of eschatological heavenly space that would be free of gender because the human soul would import gender into whatever space would um, they would the soul would be occupying beyond death um so it would seem in that sense that the friend doesn't offer as much of a model for transcending human gender as you might think at first glance because um i mean some scholars writing about the friend have stressed that the the friend was offering this eschatological hope for a heavenly existence free from gender but i think it's sort of actually it you have the opposite implied in in the practices of the society and the friend that you have the implication that the soul can't escape gender and binary human gender remains immutable on into heaven um but that's just my interpretation there's a lot there's differences in the scholarship on that that's fascinating because that makes the friend exceptional even in spirit then yes um, which is super interesting but I, i think that it feels to me like the thing that the friend and the society seem to be um, denigrating primarily was sex, sexual desire, not not bio- biological sex, but and so that that you could be free from that um, eschatologically speaking seems like maybe that was the primary goal, and that gender was less of a problem <laughs> than than sexual desire. You know, um, mm-hmm. yeah, but I think that's see. true. Yeah, um, perhaps we better move on to talking about some of the issues of women in leadership uh, and we've already started talking about issues of uh, chastity in the Society of Universal Friend. Um, could you start us off on that, Carol? Yeah, um, I guess when I was looking at this question, my first question was, would, would we consider the friend to be women in leadership? Although, Marie, you touched on that a little bit um, earlier as you were talking at the different scholarship and how over time, there's been an evolution in how the friend is treated in historic scholarship. Um, I was particularly curious in looking at this question as to um, who was in the community, because it seemed like with such an unusual leader, uh, were there particularities in the community? Um, So the Moyer book touched on this a bit, and uh, I found it somewhat surprising. Uh, The the community was... um, uh, 48% male, and that was in comparison to about 51% of the general population. Um, the community of friends was slightly younger than the population as a whole at that time. There was a difference in the uh, percent of followers who never married, which was 14% among the friends and only 5 to 8% of the general population. But once again, that was a little surprising to me as I would have thought um, that might have been a larger percent among the friends. Hmm, um, yeah. yeah, it was that was a curious um, statistic to me. And then um, overwhelmingly white, although there were a couple of members who were black. And um, also interestingly, the uh, the Society of Friends was wealthier in general than the communities that they came from. So there were a couple of members who were particularly wealthy and helped fund the communities move farther west, but even um, even taking those few members out um, on a whole, the median income among the friends was higher than among the communities that they came from. So um, those topics were interesting to me. Just looking at who the who who were the who was the community. So um, and then as I was looking, I was curious as to the characteristics of the community. Um, 
uh, on a continuum looking at perhaps um, the, the Universal Friends were perhaps not an offshoot of the Quakers, but a lot of the early uh, Jemima Wilkerson herself uh, grew up Quaker. Some of her family members um, were excommunicated from their um, meeting house for various um, various um, joining the army and various things. So mm-hmm. she did, or the friend did draw from, um, you know, from Quakers. And then um, the Moyer book did quite a bit of comparison between the friends and the Shaker community, which I found to be quite interesting because they were both somewhat radical offshoots of the, of the Quakers. Um, so, uh, so I wanted to kind of compare the, the Shakers versus the Universal Friends. Overall, the Quakers, as, composed, as opposed to the general population, had fewer children. They believed more in uh, men and women uh, within a husband-wife relationship being spiritual equals. Um, so they had a lot less um, gender hierarchy within their homes and tended to focus on uh, as, as the Moyer book said, uh, quality as opposed to quantity in terms of um, bearing children and raising children. So they would tend to have fewer children and then, um, you know, focus on the, the spiritual upbringing of their children um, to a greater extent than the society at large. And then, so that would be, you know, somewhat, somewhat separate from the, uh, the population at large. And then the Universal Friends and the Shakers were both, I would call, perhaps radical offshoots of the Quakers. So uh, perhaps just comparing those. Um, the Shakers were also, uh, their their main leader was um, was a, a born a female and stayed a female her whole life. So Anne Lee was her name. And, um, and she actually did... Um, her, her followers did actually believe her to be the second coming of the Christ. So in that sense, there was a substantial theological difference from the Universal Friends. But the Shaker community um, started in England. They moved to the United States. They set up several, like nine, nine different settlements. Um, and the Shakers required celibacy. So unlike the Universal Friends, the Universal Friends lived mostly in households, um, individual households. And there was the Faithful Sisterhood, which was a group of 48 women who were particularly close followers of the friend. Um, Of those 48 women, half of them never married. Another third were widows. And then, um, you know, and then the others were married. So uh, they were not necessarily all heads of household, but some of them lived with other families, but they were, um, you know, outside of the usual arrangements of wifehood and motherhood, um, which would have, um, you know, given them certain, Um, you know, certain different freedoms from a woman who was a wife and a mother. Um, The Shakers had held all all of their property communally, so they did not have individual property ownership, whereas the Friends um, did have individual households. Uh, The Shakers were more formalized in their roles in the community. They were more hierarchical. So, uh, and they, in theory, shared power between men and women. But in reality, there was quite a bit of resistance within the Shaker community to to women in leadership once once Anne Lee, their original, um, the original leader passed away. The next main leader was a man. And at that point, there was uh, increasing resistance to other women other than Anne Lee in leadership. And then when Lucy Wright took over leadership in 1796, there was a, a large exodus from the community, seemingly um, seeming opposition to having a female as the head of the religious community. Um, the Shakers had men and women who were deacons, but they um, the men were considered trustees and the women were uh, considered officer sisters. And the difference was that the women were not allowed to hold land in trust on behalf of the community. Um, so although they uh, professed to have gender equality and rather rigid, more rigid than the friends' gender roles within the community, they did not actually um, allow women to own the community's property. So um, that was unlike the friends who um, were less formalized in their uh, gender roles within the community. And, um, and, and yet women, uh, for example, Sarah Richards um, was uh, a widow who was a close friend of the Universal Friend. And Sarah Richards was the 
uh, person who was selected to hold land and trust on behalf of the universal friend. So after the friend died, the, the land that the friend had held in trust was, um, was held by Sarah Richards. And um, men were legal representatives of the community because in the state of New York at that time, women could not form, uh, could not hold that role. Uh, but at the same time, women were legal managers of the estate of the friend and had a lot of um, business um, dealings and a lot of buying and selling on behalf of the community. So that was any, any comments on that? Sorry, y'all. Oh, no, thank you so much for that. I'm especially I'm glad that you brought up the demographics. I'd meant to prepare something on the demographics, but, I'm, but I didn't get around to it. So I'm glad that you gave us those details. And that comparison between the Society of Universal Friends and the Shakers, that's a really um, illustrative uh, one, I think. And if any of our listeners want to learn more about that, one of the classic pieces of scholarship on the friend of that earlier scholarship that treats the friend as a woman in leadership is a piece by Susan Juster called Demagogues or Mystagogues, Gender and the Language of Prophecy in the Age of Democratic Revolutions, that treats the friend in relation to Anne Lee, particularly uh, uh, in terms of prophecy and in terms of the trope of the woman of revelation. So that would be an interesting um, place if you wanted to look more at that comparison. Um, and then the legal matters. <laughs> One thing I wanted to say, it's sort of a little bit off topic, sorry, but when you're talking about how men had to represent the society just because of the laws at the time, when you look at the legal papers of the society, you get a lot of a sense of the resistance of the friend in the society to using a human birth name for the friend and using gendered pronouns for the friend this caused them almost you know some legal problems because of the way the for example the last will and testament of the friend had to be phrased um in order to insert the name Jemima Wilkinson in there without acknowledging that the friend is actually Jemima Wilkinson um, and keep a separation with those two identities. So uh, legal things always causing problems. But <laughs> Sorry, um, that's off topic. Uh, Carla, what were your comments on this um, subject of discussion? I don't think I have a thing to add. Like, um, <laughs> you all have thoroughly covered it. And I, it's so fascinating to me to compare um, the Shaker leader uh, and the Universal Friend. And I think that it, it is um, just interesting to think about women's leadership in light of those two people. So uh, the piece that you suggested, Marie, sounds fascinating. That's all I got. Okay. Uh, and I think we do, for the sake of time, need to move on to our last uh, point of discussion, which is something we've already brought up, um, the role of the friend in colonial expansion. Um, so one thing that I appreciate about the Larson article is that he resists the urge to be just purely celebratory of the friend and of the friend's gender transgressions. And sorry if you hear my son screaming in the background. Um, his father's taking care of him. He's okay. <laughs> but uh, Larson in the article points out that the friend had a role in settler colonialism. Um, the friend was a religious leader who established a colony and whom local histories in that New York area have celebrated as a pioneer. And it was partly the friend's performance of genderlessness and the spiritual power and authority that the friend claimed in relation to that um, that gave the friend the ability to further colonizing efforts in that way as the community's leader. As Larson says, the claim to actually be divine played a role in the friend's participation in westward expansion. Um, so there are ways in which the Society of Universal Friends might be what we'd now think of as sort of forward thinking socially. So for instance, uh, the roles of responsibility of women in taking leadership roles or women in relation to property. Um, and this would be like many of the, the Quaker groups um, that the society would be related to socially and theologically. Um, that. So like those groups, the, the society was also against slavery, and we've already mentioned that there were a few black members in the society, even though it was uh, very predominantly white. 
Um, but the colonial project was something that I, I believe was not even questioned as far as I can tell. Um, there were a couple of efforts at evangelizing the local peoples. Um, and um, there's an incident that Larson describes at the Treaty of Candaigua in 1794 in which Seneca women, women took the friends preaching a call to repentance as an opportunity to then um, issue their own call to repentance to white people for being, as they're recorded saying in an account by the Quaker William Savory, the cause of all the Indians' distresses. Um, but despite this, the, the friend and the society were seemingly not critical of colonial expansion and viewed themselves as having a sovereign right to the land. Um, so I wondered if there was anything in relation to that that you all wanted to comment on before we move on to our uh, passing on section. I don't know that I have anything terribly specific. I have, um, you know, theories of hierarchy and how white supremacy, you know, is is yet another hierarchy along with gender hierarchy. And uh, it just, it feels like it's another uh, one of those moments where there was an impression that, that um, as white people that they were somehow closer to divinity. And then with the, with the friends having, uh, being spirit rather than human, that that just extended um, the rights of authority in a way that uh, reinforces a hierarchy that I feel like um, aligns with colonization. So those are all super abstract <laughs> theoretical level thoughts, but um, to me, those hierarchies are at, at play in this. Mm -hmm. um, and these, this uh, expression of genderlessness didn't necessarily um, undermine those hierarchies. So, Yeah, so hi undermining... Um, um, Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Well, I was just going to say that um, also on the topic of hierarchies, I guess I do have something to share that it was interesting uh, that it seemed that although the society itself perhaps shook up some of the hierarchies, um, it, it did seem to be the case uh, that the households themselves did not necessarily transgress hierarchy. So if there was a fa uh, household within the friends, generally the husband was decisive patriarch uh, made decisions on behalf of the family. So a lot of the, um, you know, the traditional gender stereo stereotypes or hierarchies that would have operated within a household continued to operate within the uh, universal friends in those households that were husband, wife, families, hmm. um, a little bit less, you know, there, not, there were fewer people overall who were, you know, there were more people who did not marry, but among those people who did marry, there was not, um, an overthrowing of those hierarchies within the home. So, um, which then plays into, once again, um, racial hierarchies as well. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I think yeah. that both what, what you're both saying is just such a good reminder that um, when we have like a destabilizing transgression of a binary or a hierarchy, it doesn't automatically then sort of destabilize everything, um, which is, you could tend to think that it would do that and say, yes, celebrate it all. Um, but it, it sometimes works um, works out that you get a sort of doubling down in other areas of hierarchy when you destabilize one of them. So it's something to uh, keep in mind. Yes, that's super well said, Marie. And I think, yeah, non-hierarchical thinking is an entirely different thing than, um, it's an entirely different thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. thing. So, yeah. Okay, so let's move on then to the section where we give our suggestions to listeners for further explanation. I can go first. Um, so as I was thinking about the use of pronouns for figures from the past, I was reminded of a thoughtful post from um, Jennifer Bullinger on the Medieval Studies Research blog. The post is titled Women Reading Silence in a Time of Social Fracture. About It's about a class studying the 13th century romance, the Roman de Silence. And one thing that it discusses is how the class arrived at the decision to use the pronoun they for certain characters um, from this piece of fiction. So uh, this is obviously a little bit different in talking about fictional characters than actual historical figures, 
but there is a similar process of negotiating like how do we think about today's concepts of gender and gender practices in relation to the past um, and the Roman de Silence is itself a fascinating work and I think maybe something we should do an episode on at some point so that's my suggestion um, Carla what would your suggestion be yeah, just real quick on that. I think that, that this whole thing, this whole piece by Larson and this conversation that we've had has worked around this concept of how language impacts both our, our theologies and our, our the way that we understand gender. And so working with language in a way that tries to take some of that out or at least acknowledge it is just really interesting. So that sounds like a fascinating piece. Um, uh, so my passing on is a book called As a Woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and the Patriarchy After I Transitioned. It's actually by a dear friend of mine, Paula Stone-Williams, and um, it is her story of transitioning. She transitioned um, late in life after having been the CEO of a major church planting, evangelical church planting organization for most of her life. Um, and what she tends to focus on in her activism is actually women's rights, uh, which kind of plays into some of our conversation today about what is you know, where are their, what is trans rights and what are women's rights and how do those play together? And um, so mm. she's just a fascinating figure, well, great friend to me, but also just a fascinating figure publicly because she works primarily on women's rights because she feels like as a woman, she's had such a different experience of the world and understands patriarchy in a way she never did as a man. But then, of course, by speaking up as a trans woman, she's also then um, representing trans people, though she has some complicated views on that. So um, it, it's, an, it's an excellent um, book and, a, and a interesting study on, on her life and what she's experienced. So, Oh, that sounds so, that sounds great. I'm going to have to take a look at that. Oh, and one last little note about thinking about gender and language in relation to the past that I meant to say earlier, but um, we always have to surround these figures uh from that, that we're looking at through our current lenses with all these caveats that we're looking at them through our current lenses. It's not the same. It's not the same. Gender is a construct. It's changed over time. And we do that routinely with this kind of figure. Um, but we don't do that for, we say woman all the time about women in the past. We don't have a problem with that. If gender is really a construct that changes over time, women in the past are not the same as women today. Okay. But that's a whole, that's a whole nother. Yes, no, but it's so <laughs> fascinating because those, those contexts are so real and language yeah. impacts that. And yet we don't have tools by which to make yes. those designations, you know, anyway. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, side <laughs> comment there. But Carol, what's your suggestion? Sure. I'll, I'll share something I'm passing along to myself before I share my passing along. I was curious as we were doing this to, to, to ask, are there, are there languages that don't use gendered pronouns? So, um, so I looked it up on the internet and I found that Chinese, Estonian, <laughs> Finnish don't, do not use gendered pronouns. Um, and my, my nephew lived in Russia. He's 10, Tihan. And uh, he went to preschool and kindergarten in a language that's related to Finian, fin oh, sorry, Finnish and Estonian uh, called Karelian. And so I, I asked him, Professor Tihan, is it true that is this the case in Karelian too? And he said, yeah, there's no, like he went to the store and she went to the store is the same, um, you know, it's the same sentence in Karelian. So, uh, so I just passing along to myself, I'm curious about that topic, about how that influences um, you know, people's outlook of the world. Um, if there is a language, when when there, you are speaking a language that does not use gendered pronouns. So I'm gonna look a little bit more into that. But um, uh, my passing on is uh, a podcast. It's uh, called the How to Love Lit Podcast. All around, it's great. But um, uh, an episode that, um, that dealt a little bit with this issue or this topic was the, um, one of their supplements uh, on their series on the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. They did a an episode on uh, Frederick Douglass meets Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And um, I guess as a history person, it was just kind of interesting to see this would have been taking place, um, you know, in the 1840s, but in the same region of the country, which is the, you know, the burned over region, they called it because it had a lot of um, religious movements and religious revivals and just religious, different religious things occurring in that uh, part of the country. So, um, so when, you know, the friends moved to this area of New York and then, you know, a few years later we had um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the Seneca Falls conference going on in that same area. So 
Um, it's just a great podcast altogether, but also deals a little bit with this geographic and historical part of the country. Yeah, it's so interesting that so many different uh, varieties of religious um, expression and experience sort of cropped up all at once there in that, that burned over district. Um, so that's a great suggestion. I'll have to take a listen to that. And thank you so much, Carol, for joining us for this episode. It's been so great to uh, have yeah, you here. Thank you. It's been fun to be here. <laughs> And thank you, listeners, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle, at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Carla Godwin and Carol Hawk, I'm Marie Haas. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the film Black Widow. Until then, in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things love.